On the evening of September 29, 1899, a Pacific storm front pushed in on the bustling port town of Victoria, British Columbia. The rain whipped through the city, pushed by powerful winds. Mrs. Bales made her way home west across the railway bridge, a shortcut she often used. But she became alarmed when a man seemed to be following too close behind her. A panicked Mrs. Bales ducked into a group of oncoming men going the opposite direction, and she doubled back across the bridge to the east side. A short while later, she felt safe enough to attempt the crossing once again. This time, she walked in lockstep with another woman. The two ladies were separated by only a few feet, but they did not speak. When Mrs. Bales made it to the west shore of the bridge, she turned right towards her home. The woman beside her turned left towards the Songhees village. Out of the corner of her eye, Mrs. Bales saw the figure of a man following the other woman. It was the same man she had tried to avoid earlier. As Mrs. Bales continued on her way home, she heard two screams pierce through the howling wind of the tempestuous night. This is the murder of Agnes Bings, and this is True North True Crime. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of True North True Crime, the Halloween episode. We are both big Halloween fans and with all the stuff going on in the world today, we realize it won't be a traditional Halloween for a lot of people, so we wanted to bring you a spooky story from the past. But before we get into our case this evening, we want to start off by thanking all of you for continuing to listen to the podcast. If you're enjoying it, please tell a friend or share it on your social media channels as word of mouth is the best thing for a new show like ours. As always, please follow us on social media at TNTCPod for updates and we thank you for all of those five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts. It is really helping us with our visibility. This episode was compiled from old news stories and some publicly available BC Archives documents from the era, as well as a really cool article from CapitalDaily.com. Some of the language in the news reports we are using uh, is dated, especially with regards to references towards First Nations people and people of Chinese descent, as the articles are from 1899. So we have modernized the language a little bit. So this episode covers the brutal murder of Agnes Bings, a baker residing in Victoria, British Columbia in 1899 until her life was tragically taken. This case is referred to as Canada's Jack the Ripper case. So I'm a big fan of period pieces when it comes to books, film, and TV. This story reminds me of the original Sherlock Holmes stories or The Alienist or Ripper Street, which is why we figured it would be a good Halloween case. Full disclosure, when I lived in Victoria, British Columbia, I walked past this exact location where this murder occurred, sometimes multiple times a day for years. So Victoria is the capital city of British Columbia. British Columbia's west coast is on the Pacific Ocean and its eastern border is shared with Alberta and its southern border is shared with Washington state. Geographically, Victoria is on the southern tip of Vancouver Island and is also Canada's southernmost city. 
Victoria is built on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Lekwungen-speaking people. The Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanach nations are part of the Coast Salish people and are descendants of the Lekwungen family groups. Today, the Greater Victoria area has a population of about 370,000 people. The old joke about Victoria is that it's a city for the newlywed or nearly dead um, because it boasts a huge retirement community as well as many young families. The city now has a very diverse population working in many industries. However, the provincial government continues to be the biggest employer. If you've never been to Victoria, it is an amazing and beautiful city, so it's no surprise it is a tourism hotspot year-round. But Victoria can also be a spooky place, with many haunting locations. There are so many historic buildings and areas, like the Craig Derrick Castle, the Empress Hotel, the oldest Chinatown in North America, the Parliament Buildings, and Ross Bay Cemetery, just to name a few. Yeah, so stories about Victoria's dark secrets have abounded for years. It is rumored that the city has a labyrinth of tunnels under it that date back to the opium trading days. There has always been rumors about occult activity and many witches and warlocks calling it home. In fact, the heavily debunked book Michelle Remembers was based in Victoria. It was written by a psychiatrist in an attempt to expose satanic ritualistic abuse. This book is in part responsible for the satanic panic era of the 1980s. So that's a little bit about Victoria, British Columbia. Let's take you back to the 1890s when this case takes place. The streets of Victoria were bustling in 1899. The city had established itself as a trade hub with goods flowing through its port. Canada had built the E&N Railway, which brought natural resources down from the North Island. The port was busy with many large steamer ships jostling for position in the harbor. It was not uncommon to see sidewheelers and rear paddle ships. Smoke billowed from the many chimneys of the town. Although the city was modern for the time, it still had mainly dirt roads that would become muddy with the seasonal rain. The transit system had just put in five streetcar lines to support the growth of the city. In the heart of the town sat the newly built parliament buildings, signaling to the rest of the country that Victoria was the capital city of this industrious province. These were the days when a lady was rarely seen without a hat and petticoats. Men wore hats and suspenders. The city also boasted a red light district and nightlife for men coming into town with money to burn after successful gold rushes or stints in mining and forestry. Victoria was still enjoying the afterglow of the immense economic boom brought about by the Klondike Gold Rush, when the city acted as a prime supplier for thousands stampeding north to the Yukon. Across the harbor on Victoria's west shore, the Songhees village sat in contrast to the fast pace of the city. Along the shore of the Songhees village sat cedar canoes used by the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations to fish in the Salish Sea. The city of Victoria and the Songhees were connected by the E&N Railway Bridge that was often used as a footbridge for folks looking to take a shortcut to their homes located just beyond the Songhees village. 45-year-old Agnes Bings ran a bakery with her brother, William Jordan, in downtown Victoria. Although slender of build, Agnes was described as being strong and robust. Agnes was the sole breadwinner of her family, pun intended. <laughs> Her husband, John Bings, a retired railway worker, had suffered a stroke three years earlier and was unable to work. 
Instead, he was charged with taking care of their eight-year-old son, Arthur, while Agnes worked long hours at the bakery. Agnes and John lived in a modest home on Russell Street in the area known as Vic West, just beyond the E&N Railway Bridge. In the year 1899, Agnes had been living in Victoria for 15 years, having relocated from Germany. Her and her husband John had been married for 10 years. Agnes and her brother ran the Pilgrim Bakery located on Store Street in Market Square. On one side of the bakery were the saloons and body houses of the Red Light District, and on the other sat the tenements and opium dens of Chinatown. She had started the bakery as a way to support her family after her husband's stroke. It was not unheard of for Agnes and her brother to keep late hours in order to keep up with customer demands. So let's get into what we know about the stormy evening that Agnes Bings would meet a terrible fate. Early on in the day of September 29th, Agnes had stepped out of the bakery on her lunch hour to do some shopping. She picked up the usual supplies of food and groceries for her family. From all accounts, her last day alive was a normal one. At around 7 p.m., she was preparing to leave the bakery. It was around this time that a storm had begun to batter Victoria with high winds and torrential rain. She asked her brother William to escort her home on the bus as she needed help with her parcels. William told her he could not help her that night. Apparently he wanted to drink, or read, or both. Frustrated by his response, Agnes chose to leave her parcels at the bakery and to just simply bring them home the following day. She left the bakery and headed to catch her bus. Being a Friday evening, the streets were filled with revelers despite the incoming storm. When she arrived at her bus stop, she saw her bus pulling away and off into the night. Having missed her bus, Agnes was faced with three choices. Wait an hour or more for another bus. Walk the long way around the Gorge Road and across the Bay Street Bridge for well over an hour to her Vic West home in a massive storm. Or take the shortcut across the E&N Railway Trestle. A shortcut she had taken often. A shortcut that would only take half an hour. She stared at the Railway Trestle knowing that the half-mile walk to her home across the bridge was her only choice. So as the rain and wind picked up, Agnes began to walk across the bridge. If she had looked to her right during the crossing, she would have seen a rattled Mrs. Bales walking beside her. And if she had looked behind her, she would have seen that she was being followed. The man behind her was tall. He wore a long overcoat, a hat, rubber boots that did not make a sound, and a scarf across his face. He moved swiftly and with purpose as he cut the distance between himself and Agnes. As Agnes approached the end of the bridge, the sounds of the city across the water could still be heard, but she could not. She stepped off the bridge and walked towards the Songhees village near the rock cut where the bridge met the land. She would not make it home. Her scream would be heard by Mrs. Bales, but... Mrs. Bales would not investigate. As the clock struck nine and the storm continued to intensify, John Bings began to worry. Although it was normal for Agnes to keep late hours, this was far too late, even for her. But John was without a telephone, and his physical challenges wouldn't allow him to go out to search for his wife. John hoped quietly to himself that Agnes had chosen to stay with a friend downtown to wait out the storm. With no one to help him and a child to care for, John turned in for the evening. Meanwhile, his wife, Agnes, was fighting for her life. 
As Agnes moved along the tracks near the Songhees village, she was attacked from behind. Her attacker pulled her into a clearing behind some bushes. Although she fought like hell to protect herself, she was no match for her attacker. She would be strangled to death with a garret or a rope of some sort that the assailant had on his person. She would be stripped naked and then mutilated. Bing's lower body was viciously slashed by a blunt object with gouges particularly notable around her genitals, perineum, and rectum. Her womb and ovaries were still attached but lay outside of her body. Twelve feet of her intestines were missing and some were laying on the ground beside her corpse. This included ten feet of small intestine and two feet of large intestine. Her heart, spleen, and lungs were also removed and placed on the ground beside her. It has also been rumored that the assailant used his bare hands to tear through her skin. Once he was finished, the killer made his way back across the E&N railway bridge as the wind and rain howled. As he stepped off the bridge on the city side, he either made his way up Johnson Street or Pandora Street, or possibly north or south along Wharf Street. No matter which way he went, he disappeared into the night. When dawn approached the next morning, September 30th, and Agnes had not returned, John Bings asked neighbors for help. He was able to use a telephone to contact some of her friends in the city, whom she may have stayed with. Sadly, none of them had heard from Agnes. Panicked, he called the Victoria Police Department, where Constable Robert Walker was dispatched to retrace the missing woman's steps. Walker made his way along Store Street, then across the railway bridge. As he came to the end of the bridge, he took a left at the rock cut where the path splits. It was in this vicinity, within meters of where she had last been seen, that he noticed something in a hollow. At 9 a.m., Walker found the nude, mutilated corpse of Agnes Bings. At the base of a telegraph pole beside the railway embankment, Agnes Bing's body gave evidence that she had fought desperately for her life. She had defensive wounds on her hands and arms. Her naked body lay face up with an undershirt covering her eyes. Evidence would show that she had deep furrows in her neck. Officers would feel that the killer would somehow have had to have superhuman strength. Or that he used a rope or garret. Either way, the killer had exerted such tremendous pressure that strands of her hair remained impressed in the folds of her neck where she had been strangled. Her clothing, purse, and hat were nowhere to be seen. The investigation would begin as the city lay under a cloud of fear. More on that after a quick break. And we are back. The Victoria Daily Colonist newspaper would run the following article on October 1st, 1899, titled, An Awful Murder. Yeah, and that's A-W-F-U-L, but keep in mind the term awful, spelt O-F-F-A-L, used to refer to the insides of a butchered animal, and I'm quite sure that the word choice was purposeful by the author of this article. The following is the quote from the newspaper. 
The police of the city and province have a crime to unravel that for fiendishness and mysteriousness has seldom been equaled in this part of the world. On Friday evening between 7 and 8 o'clock, a woman was cruelly murdered on a well-traveled thoroughfare and within a few yards of occupied houses. Not until 12 hours later was her body found so that the murderer had lots of time to cover up his tracks and get well away from the scene of the crime. The victim of this terrible murder, the details of which are too revolting for publication, was Mrs. John Bings, a hard-working, industrious, and eminently respectable woman who, along with her brother, William Jordan, conducted a bakery on Store Street to support her invalid husband and eight-year-old son. The article then goes on to describe her travels. Yeah, and keep in mind this is all in old-timey English. Hence invalid? Yeah, and I'm trying not to use a old-timey English voice when I read the article, but it might come out. Mrs. Bings left the bakery sometime between 7 and 8 p.m. for her residence on Russell Street in Victoria West. The shortest way to reach her home was across the railway bridge and along the track to Russell Station. It is a walk that few women would take at night, but Mrs. Bings was used to it. And besides being a great lover of her home, which she managed to keep in perfect order despite her long hours at the store, she took the short and more lonely route instead of the longer and more traveled one. So they, she was murdered, but they took the time to say that she was also good at housekeeping. So weird. 1899. <laughs> The article goes on to describe her body's discovery. The body was found at the bottom of the railway embankment, about 10 feet below the rails, against a fence and a telegraph pole. There was not a stitch of clothing on it, and her hair was disheveled, showing that she had made a desperate fight for her life. Death had been caused by strangulation. The mark of the fiend's fingers and rope or strap that had been wound around her neck being plainly shown. There were deep furrows on both sides of her neck, extending from the back of her ears and meeting over the windpipe. Not satisfied with simply taking a defenseless woman's life, the maniac, for such he must have been at the time at least, proceeded to mutilate the body of his victim. Whether he used a knife or simply his hands, officials are unable to say at this time. At any rate, he left the body in a fearful state, it being disemboweled and the intestines mutilated. Okay, so the article goes on to speculate about the criminal profile. So now we get a look at 1899 criminal profiling. The murder, however, is so similar to the hundreds of inexplainable ones, where women are the victims, that the police are inclined to believe that it is the work of a man with an unbalanced mind. There are a number of individuals in Victoria at present who should certainly be placed where they can be watched, but who are still not fit cases for the asylum. So they're saying that there's a lot of bad people in town, but they can't put them all away, so they should be watching them, and anybody could have done this crime. Somebody with an imbalanced mind, so literally 90% of the population. That's the (laughs) best, yeah. But that's the best that they could come up with. This has to be the work of a madman. So the investigation would begin, and one of the things perplexing the Victoria Police Department would be the missing clothing. Not the fact that she was disemboweled. Yeah. It's like, well, her clothes were missing. Exactly. And keeping in mind that, you know, in that article we just read, they made a point of uh, pointing out that her hair was messy. Yeah. 
So uh, they're, maybe they're looking at the wrong things here. Yeah, it's like, oh, she's missing clothing and her hair was messy. It must be an unbalanced mind. Ignore the intestines. <laughs> That's great. And the article actually said they weren't going to mention how brutalized she was and then went on to mention that she had yeah. been brutalized. So some began to speculate that the perpetrator would have walked off with the clothing, but women's clothing at the time would have created quite the bundle to carry. So this led investigators to believe that the culprit may have worn her clothing to cross the bridge and move in disguise as a woman through the downtown streets. Investigators were also unable to find her purse, leading them to search the harbor from the bridge with long metal rods. So they didn't have like divers or anything at the time, so they just yeah. poked around the bottom of a muddy Bot like of the rocky, starfishy. It's a Pacific Ocean harbor bottom. Yeah. Like it's you're not gonna find it like that. But get this. However, it turns out her clothing, purse, and hat were just feet away from where her body was found. Oh my god! So <laughs> they couldn't find it anywhere. And then they trolled the harbor with metal rods. And then they're like, "Hey, it's over here, right beside the body." So so wait, it wasn't in the harbor. It was like it right was it was on the ground. Like near her in a thicket or something like that. So incidentally, um, there was not a drop of blood on any of her clothing. So she was stripped, murdered, stripped, and then mutilated. Preliminary investigations pointed to the incident being a botched robbery. Police believed that the murder became enraged when Agnes refused to give up her purse and her jewelry. However, her husband and brother would tell investigators that no money was missing from her purse in fact, Agnes carried very little, and although two rings were missing, she wasn't the type to wear expensive jewelry. Yeah, so the botched robbery idea, although reported repeatedly in the news, became a bit of a red herring. And naturally, the murder became the talk of the town and led to many people wanting to help. This included attempts to connect with the realm of spirits. So, psychics stepping forward. So Dr. Dumaine and his 21-year-old, quote, sensitive Miss Agnes Harris. Another Agnes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Common name, yeah. <laughs> they held a seance at the murder scene. Miss Harris was a clairvoyant, and she attempted to recreate the crime and describe the murderer and his subsequent movements. This she did in great detail, with it being reported that after waiting in silence for eight minutes as she sort of got into her trance... She began describing in great detail the clothing that Agnes was wearing and what the murderer was wearing. She then went into a trance and described the murderer wiping his hands on Agnes's dead body and heading back into town. She said that he paused at the start of the bridge and then again at the midway point where he dropped her stockings into the harbor. She then stated that the man tried but failed to board a steamship leaving the port. At this point, Miss Harris resumed her normal condition, and the seance ended. Miss Harris, her mother, Dr. Dumaine, and a crowd of onlookers then began to reenact the murder's alleged escape route. Yeah, they did kind of like a walking theater type thing, where they moved from the crime scene up across the bridge together and pretended to be leaving like the murderer. So cringy and weird. So Dr. Dumaine would conduct the same seance two or three more times on different evenings. Dr. Dumaine was a self-proclaimed doctor of the occult, and he would claim that he had an aversion to notoriety and that he was only doing this to help by using the spirit world. However, he seemed to have lost interest in the cause rather suddenly when a local newspaper reporter 
learned that Miss Harris was under hypnosis rather than in her own trance. The reporter began to inquire as to how Dr. Dumaine knew so many minute details of the crime. Reasoning that Miss Harris could only report what Dr. Dumaine had told her to say. The same reporter, rather crudely, recalled the suspicious drowning of Dr. Dumaine's benefactor, Madame Heller. So soon after that, Dr. Dumaine lost interest in the cause. Well, we got our guy. Yeah, so basically, basically the reporter's like, hey, wait a second, how do you know so much about this? And then also, didn't the woman who funded your whole career die? Also mysteriously. Yeah, and he's like, okay, bye. This, also, this happens a lot, though, is uh, the murderer will often go back to the scene of his crime because he's so interested to see what the police know, or she, he or she. Yeah. And uh, so this is this is pretty interesting. Yeah, and he goes back and just like makes theater of it all. Early on, due to the racism of the day and the proximity of the murder to the Songhees village, efforts were made to pin the murder on someone from the First Nations community. Yeah, in fact, there was a nude body of a First Nations woman that had been found recently where Agnes had died, um, but her death was ruled natural causes. One indigenous man named Dick did come under suspicion for the murder of Agnes. In fact, the newspaper wrongfully reported that he had been taken into custody, but he had not. So here's a clip from the Victoria Daily Colonist. Again, we have modernized the language a little bit uh, in this article. Although detectives are not disposed to discuss the progress of their investigations for the benefit of the public, it is well within the bounds of possibility that the next week or 10 days will witness an arrest that may ultimately prove of considerable importance in the solution of the Mrs. Agnes Bing's murder mystery. The article goes on to name the suspect. A West Coast indigenous man named Dick had been in town for some days with his wife and relatives. Some three days before the murder of Mrs. Bing's, the man had procured a bottle of liquor and engaged a room in a Johnson Street hotel of the no-questions-asked variety and took two women to it. After a few drinks together, Dick then sent his wife away on some pretext and plied the other woman with liquor and then assaulted her. He proceeded to attempt to mutilate her when her screams for help caused him to desist. If the report is correct, the statement of the above woman is now in the possession of the Department of Aboriginal Affairs who have communicated to the provincial police. The immediate arrest of Dick has been ordered and a constable will go to the West Coast at once to execute a warrant. Dick and his party are said to have gone to Clayhouse the morning after Mrs. Bing's murder. Yeah, so this whole lead never panned out and Dick was not arrested for the murder of Agnes Bing's, um, although he was completely defamed and slandered in this newspaper article. Mm -hmm. um, her brother, though... Uh, and we'll get into him a little bit later, he loudly proclaimed to anyone who would listen that somebody in the First Nations community had something to do with her murder. Um, and despite the random accusations launched at the indigenous community, the local newspaper actually kind of spun that a little bit. And they would say, quote, indigenous people seldom or ever commit murder without provocation. And when they do, they do not mutilate the bodies in the way Mrs. Bing's was. So, weird to have a newspaper back then uh, come to the defense 
mm-hmm. of the First Nations population, but it seemed to have quelled things a little bit so that people stopped pointing the fingers at the Songhees and Esquimalt communities. The investigation would prove to be incredibly difficult for the Victoria Police Department, as well as the provincial police, who, incidentally, were not very good at working with one another. The storm that evening had washed away all evidence. There were no similar crimes in the city to use as a starting point. There were no witnesses besides Miss Bales on the bridge. And when we look at the victimology of Agnes Bings, it's hard to find a motive. She was not involved in any illicit activity. Unlike the Jack the Ripper victims uh, in London, she was not a sex worker or impoverished. She did not hang out in saloons. She didn't owe anybody any money. She treated all of her bakery customers fairly, and she even gave a lot of people credit. She had no property or business disputes going on, and she wasn't having an affair. And it wasn't her husband. Yeah. He couldn't do it. Exactly. Yeah, because he was at home with a stroke and a, and a and son. A kid. Investigators would work long hours on the case, in many instances on their own time. Much of their time was spent rounding up random drunk men in the saloons who were perceived to be fiendish. Eventually, a $750 reward was offered for any information that led to the identity of the attacker. The police followed every lead they had, but came up short every time. On October 11, 1899, the Daily Colonist reported that police may not be one step nearer the solution of the crime than they were at the outset of their investigations. The detectives, insofar as the atrocious crime is concerned, are working in the dark and will be until accident perchance given them the end of a thread to follow. Yeah, I think we're learning a lot about 1899 here. And one of the things I'm learning, especially while researching this, is that journalists in 1899 really enjoyed run-on sentences. Mm-hmm. Mm. Lack of punctuation. Yeah, a lot of commas. So the crime became incredibly frustrating for the province's deputy attorney general, H.A. McLean. So much so that he reached out to the infamous Pinkerton National Detective Agency for help. So for those that don't know the Pinkertons, they were kind of a detective agency that was often used by um, private corporations uh, to either investigate things or often to do um, strike busting. So if there were miners that were striking, uh, the mine would hire the Pinkertons to go in there and find out who the head of the unions were and beat them up. So the Pinkertons are kind of this like PI, PI, but uh, yeah, like they they work in the shadows kind of thing, and they're also they also instill a lot of fear in people when the Pinkertons show up. And now, the Attorney General of British Columbia is calling in the Pinkertons. And so on October eleventh, eighteen ninety nine, a Pinkerton agency detective known to history only as Agent Number Five stepped off a steamship from Portland on a mission to find Canada's Jack the Ripper. In 80 pages of reports held by BC Archives, we get a glimpse into the investigation by Agent Number 5. The following is from a Capital Daily article. His first impression of the local law enforcement were that Agent Number 5 quickly discovered that the 1890s Victoria police were laughably incompetent at solving murders. At the time he took up the investigation, the most promising leads pursued by local law enforcement were the word of a psychic. This psychic had apparently used her second sight to pin the crime on a man some 30 miles up the coast, and the police quickly dispatched an officer to check it out. I was somewhat at a loss to know what to say, as they evidently put some faith in this supernatural revelation, wrote the agent. 
Apparently, it wasn't the last time that one of Victoria's police would drop everything to chase down a tip on the Bing's murder sent to them by one of the ample supply of spiritualists and self-proclaimed clairvoyants in Victoria. In fact, he had this to say, quote, It would appear there are a lot of cranks up here. So a typical day for Agent Number 5 would see him start the day meeting with the B.C. Premier, Charles Semlin, in the palatial and newly finished Parliament buildings. Within hours, he could be chasing down leads in smoke-filled downtown saloons and seedy back alleys. According to Agent Number 5's extensive notes, he was there to investigate not only the Bing's murder, but also the murder of the owner of the Garrick's Head pub. And that is a pub that I have had quite a few beers at. It's still open to this day in Bastion Square. It seems a lot of his time was spent following people and watching them on the streets of Victoria. He would often perch himself outside of the Brown Jug Tavern, the Savoy, and the Garrick's Head watching who came and went. He spent a lot of time in body houses and theaters watching and learning about the seedier people of Victoria. So he would follow up on all of the original leads uh, in the murder. He interviewed Miss Bales about her walk across the bridge that night. He interviewed John Bings, uh, Agnes's husband. He interviewed the railway watchman, who apparently did not see a thing or hear a thing. He also interviewed a Chinatown resident who, through a translator, said he saw a white man running back across the bridge and into the city that night. For a long time, Agent 5's attention was on the Songhees' village inhabitants, but eventually everyone in the First Nations community was cleared with an alibi. This made Agent Number 5 turn his attention to his favorite suspect, William Jordan, Agnes Bing's brother. So let's get into our suspects after a quick break. And we are back. So the Pinkerton Detective Agency would work in conjunction with local law enforcement until late December of 1899. And keep in mind that Agnes was murdered on the 29th of September. In the time that the investigation was ongoing, the Pinkertons would send three different agents to Victoria. They were known as Agent 5, Agent 2, and Agent 3. So during their time, they would hunt down many suspects. So here is that suspect list. So as we said before the break, Agent Number 5 was very interested in William Jordan, Agnes's brother. William was a drunk and a hothead known for violent outbursts. Agent 5 described William as a peculiar man who was seldom sober. Apparently, he had been kicked out of the house by his wife for his repeated drunkenness and violence towards her. After his wife left him, he moved in with her sister. Agnes did not approve of this relationship and refused to allow his new mistress into the bakery. This apparently angered William, and the whole situation caused a scene at the bakery just two months before the murder. William also changed his official story. Originally, he said that Agnes had asked him to walk her home, but then he said that that had never happened. On the morning of her death, William approached the bakery. A young delivery boy stood out front and said that Agnes had not arrived yet, to which William responded, She probably got murdered. Apparently, he said this to several other witnesses well before his sister was found. Ever since the killing, William had been loudly proclaiming to anyone who listened that the murder was committed by indigenous people, 
Since the murder, Jordan said that he was sure they had committed the deed as he knew the American Indians in Arizona disemboweled their victims, wrote Agent Number 5. William Jordan would never be cleared, but he was never charged either. Yeah, so he's the first. Well, I mean, there's the there's also Dick, who we talked about earlier, but William Jordan is kind of like suspect number one. Mm-hmm. The morning of his sister's murder, he's already telling people she's been murdered, and then he keeps on... And no one knows, yeah. Yeah, and then he keeps on using the classic, like, racist card of, like, blaming the indigenous population, mm-hmm. like, loudly to anybody who would listen. So there was also a man named Coates, C-O-A-T-S, who had once made an improper proposal to Bing's in her bakery. Um, I'm not quite sure what that was about. Uh, that Again, that came from William Jor- Jordan. So that sounds like somebody that hit on her. Yeah. There was also a Bill Hellborn, who on the night of the murder had walked into the city's Tivoli Theater and begun aggressively telling the manager about his idea for a play about a woman who is killed and cut to pieces. There was also Bob, a native man who had reportedly threatened a woman on the Songhees Reserve that he would cut her up like he did that white woman. Another man by the name of Charles St. John, a woodcutter from Eureka, California, was taken into custody simply for sitting by the railway yard. He was described by Victoria Police as demented. He was dressed in rags and lived in nearby Beacon Hill Park. When asked why he was hanging out in the rail yard, he said he was hoping some family would arrive one day from Port Angeles. Yeah, apparently he worked in Callwood as a woodcutter and then would walk into Victoria, which is like a 45-minute drive, half-hour drive. So that's like a, a long Yeah, and walk. then he would sleep in Beacon Hill Park, and then he would hang around the railway yard in hopes that one, like, because nobody had phones or communication, so he would just sit there waiting for family to show up from America. So he was able to account for his whereabouts that night, the night of the murder, and thus police moved on. The final suspect was a man named David McDonald Gordon. We are going to quote from the Capital Daily article again. So, yeah, this part of the article, I know we've already talked about some pretty um, graphic stuff with the disemboweling and all that, um, but this article does get into kind of like um, child sex territory. So if this is not something you want to hear about, then just zip forward a bit. But it's, it's an interesting um, aspect to the story. So here we go. Investigators on the Bing's murder ultimately began to suspect the true killer had been among them the whole time. David McDonald Gordon, a 73-year-old drifter with deep connections to the city's underworld, had briefly been recruited as an auxiliary constable to help probe the killing. Not only did Gordon turn out to have a suspiciously intimate knowledge of the case, but he would become curiously adamant without evidence that the killer was a man named Jim McCluskey, who had since left town and couldn't be found. In December, after Gordon found himself back in jail for petty theft, the Pinkertons dispatched a new detective, Agent Number 3, to go undercover as a prisoner and befriend the suspected killer. For days on end, Agent Number 3 endured Gordon's extremely vulgar stories about his past. His stints as a back-alley doctor for sex diseases, the endless young girls he boasted of ruining, his lewd stories of Victoria women receiving crude vasectomies, which he referred to as being disemboweled. 
When agent number three made up a story of raping a 15-year-old girl, Gordon hung on his every word. Agent number three began to believe he was befriending an insatiable sex-crazed psychopath who likely had a trail of victims all throughout the province. Quote, The more I talk with Gordon convinces me that he either committed the Bing's murder or has, in some way, been connected in some serious trouble before. I expect to hear of more than one case. In fact, I believe him to be a man of a demoralized brain. So ultimately, during Agent Number Three's fake friendship with Gordon, the Bing's murder would only come up once. By sheer coincidence, another prisoner would bring up the killing along with his own theory that the culprit had likely bribed the police off of his trail. All of a sudden, the normally loudmouth Gordon clammed up, other than to repeat the confidence that Jim McCluskey had done the deed. Well, I know it. Some men have a mania that way and cannot help themselves, Gordon explained. Then Gordon directly addressed Agent Number 3 with a haunting sincerity. If you ever kill a man, never let the blood of the man's head get on your clothes, or even your hands, for it will never come off. He said this as he examined his own palms. And just three days later, Gordon was returning from the prison laundry when he began to vomit up blood from a pulmonary hemorrhage. Agent number three was able to rush to his side, and as Gordon violently choked up clots of blood, the detective heard him say, I want to tell you something. Gasping and clutching at the air with his hand, Gordon said, I am gone. Before screaming his last words, Oh my God, my mother, oh my God, wrote the detective. He died still holding my hand. So he never told him the something? Yeah, he told him nothing. He befriended him for all that time, did all that great undercover work, had to spend time in a prison, and then he got nothing. With him kind of died the last suspect, but there was kind of one other suspect that we haven't touched on, and that is that rumors had circulated that it was in fact Jack the Ripper himself who had committed the crime, having fled to Canada to escape capture in the United Kingdom. But just like with the original Jack the Ripper killings in London, the killer of Agnes Bings would never face justice. To this day, the crime is deemed unsolved. Agnes Bings was laid to rest in Victoria's famous Ross Bay Cemetery. Her husband, John Bings, passed away and was buried beside her in 1916. So who do you think killed Agnes? I don't know. I don't think it was her brother. I think it was that original doctor who was doing all the weird seances. That's yeah. my favorite suspect. Yeah, I, th I think that the person um, was never known. I don't think that they they circled close enough to the actual suspect. I think he just disappeared into the into the storm. So you think that all of the suspects that they had were never the right guy or, yeah. or woman, I guess. Yeah, I think the police were chasing their tail the whole time because in those days you could travel back and forth to the United States on a steamship, just get on it and be mm -hmm. gone. You know, it's not like there was passports and stuff like that. I mean, there was, but there wasn't. I mean, we always joke about how easy it was to get away with murder in like the 60s, 70s and 80s, but in the 1890s, I imagine it was like... It was easier to be accused of a crime mm -hmm. than to be caught for a crime. Yeah. You know, back in those days it was like, you did it. And then that was it. An inquest was eventually held with regards to the murder and mutilation of Agnes Bings, and the conclusion was that she had been murdered by a sex maniac with the temporary strength of a madman. That's it. That's it. That's the best they could do with 
months and months of investigation and an inquest. They're like, it was a sex maniac with a temporary strength of a madman. Boom. Done. Case closed? Question mark? Yeah. So there was an odd turn of events that was discovered about the night before Agnes had died. And the following we're, we're going to give you here is from a Times Colonist article, which is what the Victoria Daily Colonist became in modern day. Perhaps the saddest part the investigation uncovered was that, in all likelihood, the fiendish slaying may well have been avoided. The night before, a young dressmaker named Annie Duncan had been accosted by a rough-looking man while she walked the same route as Bing's. The man appeared beside her and asked, Are you not afraid of the dark? She bravely ordered him away from her, and at that exact moment, two shipyard workers appeared which sent her assailant running into the dark night. Annie Duncan would report the encounter to Constable Walker, the same officer who would eventually discover Agnes Bing's. Constable Walker would offer to accompany her home the following night. But the following night, she decided to stay in town with her friends because of the storm. So at the very hour that Annie Duncan would have been crossing the bridge with a police escort, Agnes Bing's met a monster on the railway track. So if we fast forward about a hundred years, in 1992, Delta Hotels built the Ocean Point Resort on the site where Agnes was murdered. The hotel, now a Marriott Hotel, boasts beautiful views of Victoria's Inner Harbor and the Parliament buildings. But the hotel also holds a secret. The ghost of Agnes Bings is alleged to haunt the hotel to this day. Guests of this hotel have awoke to a woman's screams in the middle of the night. Employees have complained of a strange feeling that comes over them when they are near the pool or walking along the basement-level hallway. Some diners, enjoying a meal and the view through the giant harborside windows of the dining room, have been startled to see the image of a woman dressed in a grayish-white dress floating across the harbor. It would appear that the spirit of Agnes Bing's still has some unfinished business with the city of Victoria, British Columbia. And that brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you enjoyed this haunting Halloween tale. We would love to hear your theories on the Agnes Bings murder. Or if you have a ghost story or mystery you'd like us to look into, send us an email at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. We'll be back with you uh, in two weeks with a new episode. But until then... Have a happy Halloween and stay safe, everyone. Stay safe, you guys.